0: THE REVOLUTIONS OF TIME by Jonathan Dunn This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by William Hahn in Australia THE REVOLUTIONS OF TIME by Jonathan Dunn Chapter 9 Mutually Assured Deception The light of the newborn sun rose that instant far enough above the horizon to shine directly into the tower's upper-dome-like room, and I was awestruck by the texture that the lights created on the glass of the walls, for when it shone through at just the right height, a previously invisible picture came to view. It was of a towering clipper ship with sails that stretched across their masts like skin over the bones of a pleasantly plump fellow, the wind billowing them about at a leisurely rate. Waves broke gently upon the ship's side, as the crew rested peacefully on the various cables and nets, all except for the one-legged captain who was busy looking at the map and accompanying charts. It was a quaint and beautiful scene, though it soon passed away as the sun moved upwards in the sky, and I wouldn't have mentioned it except that as it disappeared, I found myself looking at where it had been, but instead of the ship I saw directly through the glass the inhabitants of Nunamai arising and beginning their daily business a scene which I might have missed since I was previously wholly absorbed by the picturesqueness of the sky. Usually the Zards would arise before dawn and be about their business, but because of the great flames of the night before, they had no doubt had trouble sleeping, and therefore slept later than usual when they finally did fall into the lands beyond consciousness. They hustled and bustled about the streets of Nunamai, each doing their own business, and there was much business to be done in the city, which all provisions are provided internally, with no trade or commerce outside whatsoever. There were merchants and stores still, yet they were not traders but producers, each making their own wares as they sold ones that had already made. Butchers sat in the shops with their blood-stained aprons already donned, cobblers and tailors were busy with the day's repairs and new creations. The milkmen paraded the streets slowly and methodically, somehow getting their products to the citizens before 8am. The farmers and herdsmen were also at work in the fields that were spread throughout the city, ploughing and sowing, and being joined by those who had just finished distributing the milk. All was commonplace and normal, I thought, and I was surprised, for the Zards were not at all martially minded, a great contrast to their Canatorian brethren. Of course I had never actually met any of the Cantorian commoners. It seems to me that the only ones who really are martially minded are the leaders and politicians. Everyone else seems to mind their own business and sometimes I wonder if there would be even any wars if there weren't any governments with the power to wage one. There was a group of Zards by the government sector which was close to my involuntary quarters and they were leaning over an opening in the aqueduct that ran down into the lake in the southern section of the city, branching off from there into all the various sectors. They were dumping a barrel of a fine white powder into the water that was running down into the lake, and after the first had been poured in, they added another and another until they had put a good five barrels into the water source. Once they had finished, they took the empty barrels to a large cage that was down the road a bit, inside of a small grove of trees and shrubs. Inside the cage was a multitude of little beetles that crawled around every which way and were evidently feasting on a large chunk of glowing material. For a moment I was surprised and wondered what it was they were doing, but then it hit me. They were the Delcator beetles that Bernibus had told me of earlier, the ones that absorbed the radioactive material and stabilized it. As I learned later, they had two good uses, one, was that they consumed the unstable materials and neutralized them, but the other was that their droppings, when mixed into the water supply, also gave all that consumed them a greater tolerance for nuclear material. It was almost ironic that their whole way of life was dependent on the faeces of another life form, but I will refrain from turning it into a metaphor. The female Zards wore a black headpiece that mostly covered their faces, and at first I found it strange that for all his talk of progress, the king's people still oppressed their women. Perhaps there wasn't as much progress as he had boasted, or, more likely, he was unaware that there was no such thing as progress, just different manifestations of oppression. History repeats itself, they say, and indeed it does, both literally and figuratively. There suddenly arose a great commotion in the square between the temple and the palace, and as I looked, I was surprised to see that there was a large crowd gathered. In the middle of the square, there were two groups of ten Zards facing each other, with a single Zard in between them, and around the outside of the plaza area stood a hundred or so spectators, apparently watching those in the middle. A moment later, I started watching. The solitary Zard, the referee as I found out, walked to the edge and each of the groups walked to one of the opposing sides and then turned about to face the other. The referee let out a loud yell and in a flash the two teams ran at each other headlong until converging somewhere in the centre of the field. As they met they dived upon one another and pushed and shoved until the left team had isolated one of the right's players who was the only one on his team wearing an orange jersey they dived on him and jumped until the whole field was piled high with them and then they slowly began to disembark once all of the opposing team's players were off of the orange shirted zard all was silent and still as the referee held his hand aloft and began counting with his fingers everyone held their breath and stood tensely by as they watched just before the referee's tenth and final finger was counted the orange shirted player rose from the ground amidst the screams of joy from his team, and about half of the crowd, apparently their fans. The two teams then returned to their respective sides, and again the referee yelled loudly, signalling them to rush at each other once more, and more of the same ensured, this time it being the other team's orange shirted player to get pounced on. Once again there was a high pile on top of him, and once again, as they crawled off, and he was exposed, the referee began to count except that this time the orange-shirted one never got up. The other team cheered again, and so did the other half of the crowd. The referee went to a pole on the sidelines and put up the number one on it, while a few bystanders picked the Zard up and carried him off the field. They continued to play in this fashion for a while, going until one team or the other had no longer any players to be jumped upon. But I was too disgusted at their violent nature to watch, and instead walked over to the end table and picked up the telescope, taking back, as I did, my thoughts about the innocence and gentleness of the common folk. With the telescope in hand, I went over to the eastern side of the room and began to closely inspect the savannah, in an attempt to get a bird's-eye view of the point of my entrance in Dame. It looked rather the same from above as it did from below, though the smells and sounds were missing, and I found that it was rather bland once the initial excitement, surprise and respect of its novelty had worn off. Indeed, it was quite too dull for me, even in my state of boredom as a prisoner, though I suppose that that isn't a proper description of my feelings, for I wasn't free from excitement or intriguing events, but rather I was in the middle of a campaign of new and anticipated things, but simply unable to participate. Stuck in a room 800 feet from the ground, with walls of glass that allowed observation of the whole island of Dame, which I assumed to be the only civilization in the world, while great events unfolded around me, of which I was supposed to be the primary actor, was very disconcerting, though I find in retrospect that fate works so mysteriously in my situation that it is quite puzzling to think about it, meaning, of course, my relationship with the doom of humanity, as preventer and provoker, as saviour and condemner. My writings of this manuscript may be considered quite a bit cheat, as it details my direct involvement with Onan, the lord of the past, and the general circumstances of the end of life on earth, for the current age at least. But still I am allowed to write it. Onan told me just a few moments ago that I could write it and tell all that I want, to which I was taken aback. When I asked why he would allow me to break the law of the council of the gods, he replied that there was no rule against a human agent from detailing his involvement in the action of the divines. It was allowed, he told me, because it would never make a mite of difference or even if it were able to survive the bitter ice ages and all the evolutionary periods in this tab, temporal anomaly box, which I will explain later, since I get ahead of myself and have not told of them yet, and even if it is found by humans, and even if they are capable of understanding the text contained within it, even then they will take no gain from it. I was again taken aback when he said this. "'For though I know humans to be stubborn and foolish in general, "'I would think that they would at least mind the warning "'when the conditions of its completion came to pass. "'But he dissuaded me, "'telling me that my coevals of the next age "'would no doubt take it as a novel. "'At this I took your defence quite personally upon myself, "'and demanded it in as not so humble a tone "'as would be thought proper, "'though, as I am about to die within the next day or two, I have to admit that I don't give much of a damn for politics or manners. And yet, with all my ardour, I was quickly subdued by a curt rebuke by my interlocutors, for Zimri was there as well, which was, quite simply, that you hadn't taken Homer for any more than a creative poet, even after a few thousand years of study. So why should my meagre manuscript make such a large impact?' At that I acquiesced to them and admitted that on that end my attempt to save humanity one way or another was contemptible. But I still write, as you see, for the story's sake and possibly for my own material immortality. But never mind that, for it is high time that I went back to my story. I was looking through the spyglass at the various areas of Dame, where my adventures had so far taken me. After I had examined them all for a few moments, I felt a strange urge to use the telescope to look closely at the mainland that I had seen before, to see what the effects of the Great War had been there. As I turned the telescope sights towards it, I was at once surprised and flabbergasted at what caught my eye. There were living beings on the mainland, not too far from the coast, and not only that, but they were standing upright, though stooped, as if by a weariness and the wiles of life, and they seemed in general to resemble humans, not directly, but as much as the Zards and the Canitaurs did, and with the effects of the radioactive instability greater on the mainland, it would seem natural that they would be further removed from normality than those on Daim. The land itself was barren and flat, with sparse vegetation in the forms of small, deformed shrubs and a short, weak-looking grass. As I looked closer, I saw that there were about six of the strange stoop humanoids and they were gathering the fruits of some of the shrubs for consumption. In a few moments they finished their task and began to walk further inland, and I followed their progress with interest until they finally disappeared behind some of the small plateaus that were scattered here and there among the wastelands. Putting the telescope down, I walked over to the couch and laid down on it, with indignation filling in my every move, for I was almost enraged that the Zards and the Canitaurs both should fail to tell me whom they claimed to respect as kinsman-redeemer, and whose decisions would seal their fate for good or ill, that there were other survivors from the Great Wars. I was also shocked by their selfishness, for while they fought pettily amongst themselves over how they would change their lands for the better, a seemingly important question about past and future, they completely ignored the sufferings of other humanoids to whom their way of life no doubt seemed like a paradise. But there they were stuck across the sea on their desolate lands, unable to cross to Dame and enjoy its plentiful resources and luxuries, yet not at all unaware of them, for as they labored in their hopeless ways, they could see Dame shining like a heavenly vision before them, one which they were not able to touch or grasp, but instead one that must infuriate them to no end in their heart. At the knowledge of fate's unfairness and their utter hopelessness and complete poverty, not because of their laziness or their ignorance, or anything involving their actions whatsoever, but simply because they had been born on the wrong side of the sea. At that moment I was embittered against both the Zards and the Canitaurs, for their selfishness and their pretensions of morality. There is no morality where one sees another starving and suffering, and does not help. When one sees a whole race of people living on a land where nothing but sorrows dwell, but will not let them share the wealth that was given one by no doing of oneself, there is no morality in selfishness. And when I saw those wretched people, I no longer felt like redeeming those on daim from the impending doom of humanity. Whatever plans they had for me, they never told. I sensed, for there was something deeply wrong about the way they looked at me and talked about me. Something deeply wrong about the way they patronized me and treated me. Like a silly child while I was the one who was to decide their fate. The Canitaurs and the Zards both looked at me with a subtle sense of deceit and ill-will, all that is except Bernabas, which is why our friendship flourished so swiftly. As I laid there with thoughts of Onan and the decision that I was to make, and all of the responsibility that was put upon me involuntarily, as I thought of the conflict of past and future, at the neglect of the present, as I thought about the self-obsession and the over-indulgence that came with wealth, and the desire for still more that accompanies it, I fell to sleep, and into a place where no troubles lay, for my long day and night had left me in no energy for dreams. End of chapter 9